from the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 2. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the back side of your message notes. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get him near because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately he picked up his bed, and he went out before them all, so that they were amazed, and they glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of God. You know, in the first century, there were many, as we read this story, who were very excited about Jesus. He bursts on the scene as an, as an absolutely compelling character. Who can help but be drawn to him, this man who shows up on the scene, as we've seen in the first chapter of this book, which we've been studying. We've seen that his, his baptism was extraordinary. The heavens were opened, and God's voice was heard saying, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. We heard, we, they've seen that his message was revolutionary. In the first verses of this book, the, Jesus arrives on the scene saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Turn back and, and believe the good news. The people wonder, can it really be that the long-awaited promise of the prophets about God's deliverer is finally coming true? Can this man really be the one spoken of by Isaiah and Daniel and Malachi? Is he the one? Will he be the one to throw off the shackles of Rome, that conqueror of, their, of theirs? Will they finally be free again? Yes, his baptism was extraordinary. His message was revolutionary. And his charisma was profound. He calls swarthy fishermen, and immediately they leave their vocations and their family, and they join up to him. They follow him. His charisma was profound, and his teaching is teaching. What about that? It was compelling. He had an authority, they said, that was not like anybody else's authority. There was a presence about him, something about what he said. It was the truth. They, it was compelling, and his power was legendary. Demons cowered before his power. Sickness fleed at his command. Everywhere he went, demons and sickness flew away. Yes, this man, Jesus, had a revolutionary message, a charismatic leadership, extraordinary teaching, and legendary power. Surely, he must be the one. No doubt that's why when Jesus returns to his adopted hometown of Capernaum, everyone's interested in Jesus. The whole, the whole town crowds around him. So we read in the first verses, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching 
the word to him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. He, everyone wants a piece of Jesus. The, the, the house is packed. They're crowded in the street. He must be the one. That's the scene we encounter, as I said, in this second chapter of Mark. Jesus is immensely popular. It seems like everything is going his way. Now, this story that we read about in Capernaum, which Susan read for you, reveals a significant shift in Jesus' popular perception. Mark lets us know that despite all appearances, not all is well in the Jesus campaign. Uh, it, it seems like it is, but it really isn't. This scene reminds us that despite his popularity, not everybody likes what Jesus is doing. Not everybody likes what Jesus is saying. Not everybody likes who Jesus is hanging out with. Not everybody likes what Jesus, where Jesus goes. You see, let's look closer at this story here in this second chapter and see how this be- develops. So men bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. They can't get in there. such a crowd, so what do they do? They climb to the top of the house, which would be tough to do in our days, but in those days they had outside staircases on the outside. They had uh, 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 different kinds of roofs than we had, so they climb to the top of the house, which, believe it or not, is probably either Jesus' own house or Peter's house. You know, we don't know, but it's probably Peter's family home or, or Jesus' home. That's most likely. This had been Jesus' uh, home base now. So they climb to the top of the house, and, uh, and they begin to remove the roof tiles so they can drop their friend through the ceiling down from above. I wonder what that must have been like. It might have been like someone driving tractors in the middle of your church service, as sometimes happens you know, for us. A little bit of distraction or other sound systems that are going on. They were distracted as stuff's coming through down. Down comes this man on this pallet. Jesus stops his teaching, of course, and watches the sick man lowered down. Everyone waits to think, what happens next? What's he going to say? What are they going to do? What does he say? Well, he looks at the man, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) What a shock that was. Or maybe he went, son, (laughs) your sins are forgiven. You you just broke into the top of my house. Who knows what he means? Uh, Your sins are forgiven. At, At that moment, Everyone in the room is confused. No doubt the man on the mat is confused. He's thinking, wait a minute, forgiveness is fine, but can't you see I have another problem here? I can't walk. I'd like to have forgiveness. That's good. But what I really want, can't you see what I really need? I need a healing. Why is Jesus offering this man forgiveness when his need for healing is so obvious? We can't help but wonder. But the man on the mat is not the only one who's confused. In fact, there's another group of people who are not merely confused by what Jesus said. They're upset by what Jesus said. Mark introduces them in the very next sentence when he, when he says this. Now, some, verse 6 now. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? All of a sudden, we see that Jesus may be overstepping his boundaries. Maybe he's claiming prerogatives which really belong to God. Is that really right for him to do that? Some men are wondering, what is going on? Well, these two responses, the confusion of the man on the mat and the consternation of the scribes suggest two important lessons that we want to learn from this story that we'll take the next 15 minutes talking about. Those two lessons are this. When Jesus shows up, he meets our deepest needs. And when Jesus shows up, he challenges our deeply held notions. Now, now that you may have written those things down, we will take the second one first. It's the actual one that goes to the top. When Jesus shows up, 
he challenges our deeply held notions. This is something exasperating about Jesus. If only he would stay where we want him to stay. If he only he would just tell us what we want him to tell us. If only he would help us in the ways we want to be helped. Do you ever feel that way about Jesus? That's the problem going on here. Mark wants us to see right away that Jesus does not fit into our boxes. Jesus wants to change everything about our lives. If we ignore what Mark is saying, we're missing one of the main points, that when Jesus shows up, he turns everything upside down. He challenges our notions. He starts to clean house. He starts to, act, starts to act as if not only is he just in charge of everything else, he's in charge of me and my life too. And that can be a little uncomfortable because I kind of like my easy chair, right? I kind of like my notion. You see, if the Jesus I follow never makes me uncomfortable, if the Jesus I follow never forces me to basic question, question some of my basic assumptions, if the Jesus I follow never steps on my toes, I'm probably not following the real Jesus. You can put that down if you want. If the Jesus I follow never steps on my toes, I'm probably not following the real Jesus. One reason why we need the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is we need to hear the truth about Jesus. Otherwise, we will invent a Jesus that matches our own ideas, right? We will do that. We do that all the time, don't we? But that's not what the Gospels allow us to do. That's why they are so important. We need to follow the Jesus who sometimes steps on our toes. Mark wants us to see that. And he develops this throughout the next, uh, actually the next chapter and a half. No sooner do we see Jesus on the scene preaching, teaching, and healing, but he has great popularity, but he becomes a very, uh, a very uh, controversial figure now because we have five consecutive stories, starting with this one in the second chapter, which show us that not everybody was overjoyed by what Jesus said and by what Jesus did and by where Jesus went. Jesus is making waves among the religious elite. Jesus is ignoring some of their deeply held traditions. Jesus is something of a, of a troublemaker. It begins here in the second chapter, and it continues out through the next four stories, five consecutive stories. Briefly, let's see this. Healing is one thing, for example. Jesus is going to heal this man, but claiming to forgive sins, that's the prerogative of God alone. It seems like Jesus is claiming powers he shouldn't claim to have. That makes people uncomfortable. From there, we move on to the next story where Jesus calls Levi, the tax collector we ultimately know as Matthew, a disciple who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. We see him calling Levi, the tax collector, and Levi holds a great party, either at his own home or perhaps at Jesus. And it says in the next story that many, quote, tax collectors and sinners are present. The religious leaders are scandalized by this break of form. Jesus is welcoming people he ought to be excluding. So he's claiming powers he shouldn't be claiming to have. And now he's welcoming people he shouldn't be welcoming. And then within the very next story, we see Jesus ignoring sacred rituals like fasting, which were very important for them in those, they, in those days. They would fast twice a week. They would put on sad faces, the, the religious elite. They would show everybody, including God, but especially everybody else, just how religious that they were. Jesus was ignoring some of these fasting uh, habits, and the religious people didn't like it. Jesus seemed to be feasting when they thought he ought to be fasting. Jesus came announcing brand new happy birthday. Kingdom of God is here, right? New creation is coming. It's a time for joy and celebration. He was feasting. They were fasting. It didn't seem right. And as if that wasn't enough in the next story, Jesus disregards some of their cherished 
Sabbath traditions. Jesus' disciples have the audacity to actually pluck grain while they walk on the Sabbath day. Horrors. Why are they doing what is not lawful, they asked him. And Jesus replies by saying the Sabbath was not made for a man, but man for, uh, man, for the, man for the Sabbath. Jesus seems to be thinking he is bigger than the Sabbath itself. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And then the final straw as we get to the third chapter in the section of the book that starts right there in the first verse. Jesus confronts the cold-hearted legalism of his opponents when he heals a man's hand on the Sabbath day. A man is there with a withered hand, and Jesus wants to heal him, but he knows it will be controversial. He has the man stand up. We'll look at it in a few weeks. And the man has obviously got a withered hand, it says. And he asks everyone, which is it right to do, to save life or to kill on this Sabbath day? And Jesus was angry at their hardness of heart. So he said to the man, stretch forth your hand. And his hand was made well. And these very Pharisees went out on the Sabbath day and began, the Bible says in the sixth verse, to plot how they would kill Jesus. They were so upset that Jesus had broken the Sabbath by healing a man's withered hand, they, they thought it was their divine prerogative to go out and plan the murder of the man who had done it on the Sabbath day. That shows you how twisted the thinking was. Yes, all these stories purposely brought together by Mark under the influence of this Holy Spirit tell a consistent, paint a consistent picture that when Jesus the Messiah comes, he challenges our deeply held notions. He wants his readers and us by extension to realize that Jesus is not a comfortable Messiah. When he shows up, he takes charge. It's his right to do that. His messiahship is different than we expect. And as we see this story even develop, we see that ultimately Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah, and I want you to know what this Messiah is going to do. I'm going to suffer, a suffering Messiah. No one wanted that message. You see, if the Jesus I follow never challenges me, I'm probably not following the real Jesus. If the Jesus I follow never questions me, I'm probably not following the real Jesus. If the Jesus I follow never stretches me, I'm probably not following the real Jesus. If the Jesus I follow never makes me uncomfortable, I'm probably not following the real Jesus. I'm following the Jesus of my imagination, not the Jesus of Scripture. Jesus is always challenging our notions. And wherever you are in your own spiritual journey, whether from spiritual skeptic to spiritual seeker to spiritual infant to spiritual toddler to spiritual grade school, to spiritual adolescent, to spiritual maturity. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you will find that Jesus is always helping you to make new steps of growth. And if you're not having Jesus challenge some of your notions, asking you to learn things you hadn't wanted to learn, to consider things you hadn't wanted to consider, you're probably not following the real Jesus, or you've gotten too comfortable with your relationship with God. How does Jesus challenge our notions? Well, number one, Jesus challenges our religious notions. Jesus challenges our religious notions. I think I gave you a place to put that down in your notes if I remember. Yeah. Jesus challenges our religion. Here that he was forgiving their sins. Now, what we know from the lens of history is that Jesus was God in the flesh. He had absolute right to forgive sins. But they didn't know that. They weren't sure about that. They had certain religious notions. They didn't like when Jesus went messing with those by claiming powers that really belonged to God. You know, we have a lot of religious notions in our day, too. Both religious people and irreligious people have, religious, have many religious notions. There are many people who say, well, you know, there are many ways to God. Just pick your own path, right? 
Jesus challenges that notion, and it's not always comfortable. We, don't, we think the, that, that that's not right. That's not fair. That's not the way it ought to be. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That can be awkward for us. What? Aren't many paths to God fine? Aren't those, many people think, well, Jesus was a good moral teacher, just like all the rest were. Or many people think, all good people go to heaven, don't they? We have many cherished notions. Jesus challenges those notions. Make sure you're not living under an invented Jesus and not evaluating the true Jesus in Scripture. But it's not just people on the outside of the Christian faith who get too comfortable with their religious notions. We can have it ourselves. We can get more committed to our ideas about God than we are to God himself. That always has troubled me that here were these people, these Pharisees, these religious people who were longing for the coming of the Messiah, who were living holy lives in expectation that God would come and rescue and redeem his people, who wanted to be first in the line to follow that Messiah. They were so committed to their ideas about how God should do it, what God should do, when God should do it, that when God actually showed up in a way they didn't expect it, they crucified him. They rejected him. It's possible that we in the church can have religious points of view. We can be committed to our particular view of how Jesus and when Jesus is going to return, and we can get so committed to that, for example. We can have various views that we hold so tightly. We need to bring, as the Scripture says, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Jesus challenges our religious notions. Jesus also challenges, challenge their, challenges our social notions. Right after this story, we had the calling of a man named Levi. He was a tax collector, despised by their own people. You know, and, and this was highly culturally unacceptable in that day, that Jesus would call this man and he would hang out with these people. You know, Jesus challenges our social notions too. I don't know which they are. For example, today we have this notion in our culture that uh, what's, tr- what's right is what the government says is right. If the government says it's right, it's right. That's not the truth, right? It's just not the truth. There is a higher authority than the government. Democracy doesn't determine truth. That goes against our social notions, doesn't it? We live in a culture that says, you know, you can uh, marry anyone you want. We live in a culture often, some of us say, if you're poor, it's your own fault. We live in a culture which says everyone has the same opportunity in America. We live in a culture which says what you do with your money is your own business. Stay out of my life as long as it's not illegal. We live in a culture with lots of social norms. We just, don't bother me, Jesus. Don't talk to me about my money. Don't talk to me about the way I treat people different than me. Don't talk to me about how the way I run my business is business. After all, a business of business is business, right? These social notions need to be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And yes, some days we, if we're really honest, need to ask ourselves hard questions and wrestle. What does it mean to love my neighbor? What did Jesus mean when he said that? What did it mean when he chose a Samaritan as the example of a good neighbor? What did he mean, and what does that mean for us? Yes, if you're really honest, Jesus will challenge your social notions. He challenges our religious notions. He challenges our social notions. He even challenges our political notions. And I won't get into 
politics here, not by any stretch of the imagination. But you need to know that this message that Jesus was coming to proclaim was a deeply subversive political message. When Jesus, when, when, when the people of, uh, who followed Jesus later said, Jesus is Lord, they meant that Caesar was not Lord. They meant it, it was a subversive message. When Jesus came announcing a new kingdom, they heard it like they heard the Caesar announcements that were made, the gospel announcements, the Evangelion, the good news messages about Caesar taking over, the good news, make your life order. Jesus comes announcing the kingdom of God is in order. It was a deeply political notion. You see, God wants to change us, not just in our hearts and the inside, but the way we live in connection with other people. If Jesus doesn't step on our toes once in a while, perhaps we're following the Jesus we made up. So, yes, this is a great Jesus. I recommend him to you. But if he always makes you happy and always makes you comfortable and always feels good to follow, you're probably not staying very close to him, right? Sometimes he will ask you hard questions. And so perhaps you want to ask him today, Jesus, how do you want to challenge me today? How do you want to challenge me in some of my notions? So we see in the first case that Jesus challenged those, uh, Jesus challenged our notions. But secondly, we see a second thing. When Jesus shows up, Jesus meets our deepest needs. Jesus meets the needs we don't know we even have. Here's this man, and all he thinks is he needs strength in his body to be able to, to, to walk again. But what does Jesus know he really needs? Forgiveness forgiveness. The key verse in this text is the 10th verse, which says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said, take up your mat and walk. You see, one of the problems we have is we think we know all of our needs. We don't know that our deepest needs are deeper than that. We need forgiveness. We need it culturally. That's the first thing. We live in a culture which is filled with animosity. Don't you get tired of people killing one another in the stories that flood our newspapers? We need forgiveness. Don't you get tired of hearing how people can't get along with each other? We need it culturally. We live in a fractured environment. We need forgiveness. I'm so impressed that in South Africa, Desmond Tutu, Bishop Desmond Tutu, after that nation came together after years of church-supported slavery... Apartheid. Years of that, they come together and they begin the Truth and Reconciliation Project. And they've been doing it all these years of learning how to forgive one another, to stop the cycle of violence. And we can be thankful for that, that that is led by the church, Bishop Desmond Tutu and others alongside of him. We need it culturally. Secondly, we need it relationally. We need forgiveness relationally. That We don't get along with people like we should. In fact, I'm the, the longer that I work with people and help counsel people, talk, talk to people, I often know that deep in the heart of our lives is the same problem this man had. We've got unforgiveness towards someone who hurt us. We've been hurt in some kind of way, and we continue to live out of that hurt, to act out of that hurt, to try to re-hurt the person who hurt us or to be different. We need relational forgiveness. Yes, that's why the Bible says, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, 
even as in Christ, God forgave you. That's why Jesus in his Lord prayer said, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Our deep need is forgiveness. We need it culturally. We need it relationally. We need it personally. We need it personally. Ever since the Garden of Eden, there's been a divorce, a fracture, a breakup between us and God. God didn't intend for it to be that way, but it happened. And now Jesus has come in order to bring us back to him. He died so that we could be forgiven. That's why on the cross he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So while you might want to ask of Jesus on the first point, Jesus, how do you want to challenge me today? Maybe on the second point you want to ask, Jesus, will you forgive me today? And the truth of the matter is, Jesus wants to forgive us. That's why when he hung up on the cross, he said what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Yes, Jesus challenges us, but Jesus meets our deepest needs. We need that message of forgiveness. I'm grateful that Jesus has come to give us his forgiveness. I encourage you, invite you, will you receive it from him today? What do you do? You respond in faith to Jesus. What did this man do? Jesus said to him, get up. <laughs> and the man obeyed. What does Jesus do? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. If you're laboring under the burden of unforgiveness, whether that of other people or the barrier between you and God, come to him, and he will give you his forgiveness. Let's have prayer as we close. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for that great message of forgiveness. Thank you that you love us too much to leave us where we are, that you do challenge our deeply held notions, but that you also meet our deepest needs, the needs of forgiveness. Father, some of us here today may be, for us, this is the time when we need to come to you like that leprous man came to you in last week's message and say to you, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean and hear from you the words, I am willing, be cleansed. Thank you that Jesus died so that we could be forgiven. Help us to receive that forgiveness and help us then to share that forgiveness with those who have hurt us and help us to build a culture of forgiveness. Thank you for this message. Thank you that you're not always a comfortable deity, but that you are a faithful friend who tells us what we need to know and offers to us the forgiveness of God. We receive it today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we have the Lord's table available for you here, over there, and I think at the back as well. And this is, of course, the ultimate message of forgiveness because in order to give us forgiveness, what did Jesus do? But he laid down his life for us and died. Let's take the Lord's table together. Feel free to serve yourself, and I will lead you as we share together. the table, come taste the grace.
There's rest in the weary and all that endures. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. This man coming as you are required friends to bring him. You know, maybe you've been brought here today by friends or by the Holy Spirit. We come to him just as we are and we receive his forgiving message. Jesus said, This bread is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we re receive from you the forgiveness that is ours because of your sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you that so you suffered for us so that we could be free. And we invite you to continue to challenge us and help us to grow, to let you shape the way we view our world and our faith ourselves, our culture, even our church. Help us be forgiven people who live like forgiving people in this world. Help us be grace-filled people who live graceful lives in this world. Help us be a new humanity, a community of love and faith and hope. In Jesus' name I pray.